a second Bill of Rights, under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station or race or creed. Detroit was famous and led the nation in terms of home ownership and in terms of African-American home ownership. And we have completely reversed and unraveled the advances that have been made. So much of our infrastructure needs to be rebuilt in this country, but I think it's a really good opportunity to, to think about how we can do that in a more inclusive, inclusionary way. A Green New Deal reconsiders our social contract in the same spirit that the original New Deal did. So thinking more about the risks that we can socialize, the burdens that we can bear collectively, treat environmental policy as central to social policy. Welcome back to Breached, a podcast on the American social contract. I'm Helena Swanson-Nystrom. And I'm Jyoti Jashrasarya. This is the seventh episode of a 10-part series. Each episode of this podcast explores a different area of our lives that's commonly considered to be part of a social contract. Today's episode on housing, along with our last three on health, education, and employment, are issues that receive no explicit mention in the Bill of Rights. However, in January of 1944, during his State of the Union address, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt introduced something he called a second Bill of Rights. In our day, certain economic truths have become accepted as self-evident. A second Bill of Rights, under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station or race or creed. On health? The right to adequate medical care and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health. On education? The right to a good education. On employment? The right to a useful and remunerative job, the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation. And on housing? The right of every family to a decent home. Under Roosevelt's presidency and the subsequent Truman presidency, one could argue that the final idea, an American right to a decent home, was in fact achieved. However, far from the promise of attainment regardless of station, race, or creed, the right to a home imagined by the creation of the Federal Housing Administration and the passage of the Housing Act of 1949 was not for everyone. Today, we're exploring the consequences of a social contract that intentionally excludes and separates, and asking what, if anything, can be done to reimagine what a true right to housing for all would look like. The Federal Housing Administration, or FHA, was first created in 1934 in order to stabilize the home mortgage industry and make homeownership more affordable. By providing federally-backed insurance on mortgage loans made to American homebuyers and bringing new regulation to the mortgage market, many Americans were able to buy homes for the first time. However, the FHA explicitly preferenced all-white suburban neighborhoods, and it was very difficult to obtain a federally-backed mortgage if you were a person of color or lived in a racially integrated community. This practice was known as redlining, and while legislative measures like the Fair Housing Act of 1968 were eventually taken to combat it, the generational consequences of it can still be seen today. Cities and suburbs are still significantly segregated, mirroring patterns cemented by FHA policies, 
and the rate of home ownership among Black Americans is significantly lower than those of white Americans. Furthermore, the housing crisis of 2008 illuminated how fragile Black home ownership can be even when it's achieved. We spoke to Michelle Oberholzer, the director of the Tax Foreclosure Prevention Project for United Community Housing Coalition, about the housing crisis and how local policies can exacerbate the consequences of a national crisis. Michelle works in Detroit and is currently running for state representative of Michigan's 4th District. Detroit was famous and led the nation in terms of homeownership and in terms of African-American homeownership. And we have completely reversed and unraveled the advances that have been made since the Fair Housing Act was passed because we have undone the ownership and we haven't don't have anything sufficient to replace it with. Michigan is really unique in how radical our state law is. Our law says that if you're behind on your taxes by three years, then the government can foreclose or must foreclose, really. And um, they do that through an online auction where they sell the real property. So this is not selling the debt, which is done in other states. This is selling the debt and the dirt. And um, ownership is, is lost this way. 18% interest is mandatory for the government to add on top of taxes once they're delinquent. So it can be like quicksand where you get behind, you stay behind. Much attention was given to Detroit's population loss as people lost their homes and moved away. However, Michelle points out that there are still implications for families who were able to stay in their community after losing ownership of their home, but now had to rent. And there was a quote in the newspaper, and someone said, they're just renters. And that was so telling to me because it showed me that um, when you rent, you you are never expected to, you don't have the right to stay in that home forever. You're only ever there for the term of the agreement. And so what happens when we went from a majority homeowner population to a majority renter population is that we, the people that we have have fewer rights than they did before. As you track this, this crisis over time and you've effectively broken the bond between person and place by, by having them stop being a homeowner, um, now that person has only lived in the home they live in for two years. And it's really not that sad to make someone move from the place they've only been two years. But if you look back, there was a family home that was in the home for 50 years, but that already that loss already took place in the past. So it doesn't show up on the books in the same way. as It doesn't grip you emotionally quite as much. Um, and, and that also bears out in, in the rights that you have, you know, as a renter versus an owner. Michelle also highlighted a distinction that often comes up in debates about the rights inherent in any social contract. And that's the idea of explicit government action interfering in someone's life, either by taking something away or intentionally preventing someone from accessing a service, versus a government choosing not to provide that service in the first place. Regarding the right of, of shelter and of housing, I think it's really difficult to imagine the city of Detroit, for example, building homes for everyone who needs a home and spending a lot of money in that way. I mean, as a country, I believe that we have money to provide for a lot of basic needs for people that we're not doing. But just for simplicity's sake, if we look locally, I understand why the government may not be able to provide 
something that doesn't already exist. But then again, there is a difference between making an expenditure on someone's behalf and taking something away that they already have. And that's the part where I think we have really got to draw a line and we have to understand the difference. Um, and active destruction is is immoral and is wrong in a way that is far different than um, neglect or, or lack of resources, you know. So the the intentionality of it, the the forcing of the hand, you know, is something that feels so different to me. Fifteen years after FDR helped create the Federal Housing Administration, the Truman administration worked to pass the Housing Act of 1949. Upon signing the act, President Truman said the legislation was intended to provide a decent home and a suitable living environment for every American family, a reference that seemed to echo President Roosevelt's second Bill of Rights speech. Under the Housing Act, Congress approved funds for what would come to be known as urban renewal, the practice of acquiring areas of cities that were deemed to be blighted or in disrepair and demolishing those homes and buildings for subsequent redevelopment. In many cases, what replaced these residential neighborhoods were highways, bridges, and parkways that made access to certain parts of the city much more difficult. When we think about urban design and the decision to put our infrastructure in a certain place, it often seems technical and apolitical. And yet, those very decisions have huge practical implications on who lives in a certain community. We spoke with Sarah Schindler, a law professor at the University of Maine, who published an article in 2015 about how the built environment of our cities can serve to segregate and discriminate. A lot of people, when they look at urban design or the the built environment around them, they view it as sort of something that's pre-political, right? Something that lacks intent, that it exists maybe for aesthetic purposes, uh, but more commonly it exists to serve some sort of infrastructural purpose, right? There's a bridge here, because I need to get from point A to point B, and this bridge will take me there. Um, But again, I don't think most people view this as explicitly regulatory. It's not viewed as uh, this bridge was put here to control my behavior. It's viewed as, oh, well, this bridge is here, so my physical movement will follow the path of the bridge, but that's that's not being done for any intentional reason to move me in this way. When we start to look at urban design and the built environment from a regulatory perspective, I think we stop viewing it merely as, uh, you know, a, a pre-political feature of our built environment, and we start seeing it as something more than just architecture, more than just design, but we actually think about the effect that the way the environment is built, the effect that has on our behavior uh, and, and what we do and what we're permitted to do and whether it's easy or difficult for us to do these things. And so we might start to think about, well, why does that bridge exist there, right? Why does it connect point A to point B and not point A to point C? Sarah gave one example of design exclusion from her town of Portland, Maine. I guess one example that in my own town of Portland, Maine, that I was noticing was uh, some of our public housing um, is constructed in this strange way where I remember when I first moved here, it was very confusing to me because it's very isolated. And there are a bunch of dead ends, and it's really hard to get to. Uh, And as I sort of learned more about the community, I learned that 
the area where it's constructed, there used to be through streets connecting that part of the city to the rest of the city. Um, but when they built the, the affordable housing, a lot of those streets were closed off. Um, and you can still see sort of fences and, you know, paths where people are sort of walking across roads where there aren't paths and sidewalks to try to get out of this <laughs> enclosed, dead-ended area. And it just got me thinking about the ways that we've constructed our cities, both intentionally and unintentionally, to create these, these very exclusionary environments. The need to reinvest in our country's infrastructure has received attention from Democrats and Republicans alike. And President Trump has introduced a plan to spend $1.5 trillion to modernize American infrastructure. While the decisions to position highways and bridges in a certain area may seem permanent, Sarah points out that this level of investment could be a real opportunity to redesign these systems and open up communities that were cut off decades ago. A lot of that infrastructure funding could be used to actually target and address some of these legacy legacy exclusionary design features in our built environment, right? So we could use some of that money to tear down uh, our, our existing physical manifestations of exclusion and build more inclusive communities um, and do so more consciously. And indeed, before um, Obama left office, his last his Secretary of Transportation, uh, Anthony Fox could actually put up a, a website about doing this, about this idea of, of trying to reintegrate communities that had been cut off through some of these architectural and infrastructural decisions of the past. Again, I don't think that's a priority of the current administration, but it's not something we should write off, right? I think there's a sense that we think, oh, it's too hard to change our infrastructure. But so much of our infrastructure needs to be rebuilt in this country that I think it's a really good opportunity to, to think about how we can do that in a more inclusive inclusionary way. Massive infrastructure investment offers one opportunity to rethink our country's commitment to housing access. Another, even larger force may be how we as a country respond to climate change and the massive natural disasters that we've seen as a result, as weather patterns become less predictable. From Hurricane Harvey in Houston and Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico to wildfires and mudslides in California, who we focus on and how we rebuild says a lot about how our country thinks about the right to housing today. We spoke to Rebecca Elliott, an assistant professor of sociology at the London School of Economics, about why climate change has such major implications on housing in particular. In the U.S., we have this very strange model of social provision when you think about it. So... We put all of this policy effort into making it possible for people to buy what is essentially a rotting wooden box on a piece of land. And we say, you know, this is going to be at the core of your strategy for economic security. So, you know, as you point out, you know, when you monkey around with people's property values, you're also messing with their retirement strategies or with how they're planning to, you know, pass wealth to their children, you know, things that, that really kind of affect people in a material way. So, you know, to the extent that something like climate change is going to affect property values or the properties themselves by, you know, washing them away or knocking them over, um, then we have a real problem of social provision on our hands that we have to think about. Um, and so perhaps that's the, the kind of more radical implication of climate change for housing. You know, it, I think it, it gives, it exposes the kind of inherent vulnerabilities that come with thinking about 
housing as commodified. You know, housing has many social uses. It has many social functions. It's only commodified housing that becomes real estate. So, you know, when the exchange value collapses, when those property values collapse, you know, we might start to see that in some ways the root issue is the way that we commodify housing and put that at the center of our, you know, make it the premise of the way that we engage in social provision. So, yeah, that's that's kind of the the connection I draw between climate change and, and housing. In the wake of Hurricane Harvey, Rebecca wrote an op-ed in the New York Times arguing that massive natural disasters should lead us to adopt what she refers to as a Green New Deal. So a Green New Deal, I mean, this is an idea that has a pretty long history at this point. Uh, A lot of different people have kind of invoked this or or come up with uh, a a version of this. So, you know, in terms of what the Green New Deal is, it it sort of depends on who you ask. Um, But in my version, at least, uh, a Green New Deal reconsiders our social contract in the same spirit that the original New Deal did. So thinking more about the risks that we can socialize, the burdens that we can bear collectively, treat environmental policy as central to social policy. So, you know, we know from sociologists, from anthropologists, that environmental risks, which appear only to be intensifying, uh, interact in all kinds of ways with and exacerbate social risks. So, you know, poorer people are more likely to be exposed to environmental harms. They suffer worse when disasters happen, and they have a harder time recovering if they can recover at all. So any supportive society has to treat these risks together, these environmental and social risks together. Because natural disasters are an increasing reality for Americans across the country in one form or another, reimagining our commitment to housing security could be a more bipartisan effort than it may appear. You know, one of the perhaps peculiarities of natural disasters and the environmental policies that address them is that natural disasters affect Democrats and Republicans. So when these issues become the object of national level legislation or debate, you end up seeing these really peculiar coalitions around things like flood insurance, where you could have you know, Elizabeth Warren standing shoulder to shoulder with, uh, you know, very conservative members of the Senate um, because they both have constituents who are in flood zones, um, who are thinking about the conditions of their financial security in a world in which, you know, the boundaries of flood zones are moving. So in some ways, you know, I think that the increasingly universal threats creates certain kinds of political opportunities to forge bipartisan coalitions that make sensible policymaking possible. That said, you know, ideas don't just kind of rise to their moment. So I think it's actually a political project, the project of articulation to connect, you know, floods in Florida and hurricanes in Louisiana and Puerto Rico to wildfires in California to say that, you know, these, this is a kind of more general condition of risk, and we need to think more broadly about how we might socialize that risk. Uh, on what terms are we willing to socialize that risk? How are we going to pay for the socialization of that, that risk? Housing in this country reminds us that the reality of a so-called right doesn't always match the rhetoric used when creating it. Unlike in the areas of health, education, and employment, In the area of housing, our government, the Roosevelt and Truman administrations in particular, 
seemed to think that it had succeeded in creating a right by passing laws that would make home ownership a reality for all Americans. Those laws provide a lesson on the ramifications that any social contract designed in a specific way can have. The racial discrimination, segregation, and wealth gaps can still be felt today. We would love to hear your thoughts on what access to housing means to you and how we can repair the damage of old laws. As we do with every episode, we've included some sources on our website if you're interested in reading more about this issue or learning more about our guests. And please stay tuned for our next episode on May 23rd, in which we'll explore taxes and how we should pay for a social contract. As always, thanks to our producer, Marie Valindo, and to Annie Swanson-Nystrom for our artwork. The music you heard on this podcast is Lullaby for Democracy and Go Tell It on the Molehill by Dr. Turtle. We hope you'll check us out at breachedpodcast.org, follow us on Twitter at breachedpodcast, and subscribe to Breached on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have feedback or ideas that you'd like to share with us, feel free to send us an email at breachedpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a message at 617-528-0708. And if you like what you've heard so far, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Helena Swanson-Eystrom. And I'm Jyoti Jasrasaria, and this is Breached.